So logic and intuition are complementary in that logic is deductive, general to specific. It's taking things apart. That's what logic is, deductive logic. Whereas intuition is just the opposite, or better said, the complement. That's specific to general. You have all these observable details, and you want to intuit an overarching generalization. What, what do all these little bits and pieces have in common? That's not logic. That's passive intuition, waiting for the illumination to occur. Beyond politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It's the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. This podcast from Michael Benner's Wisdom of the Soul class features weekly lessons in metaphysics, mysticism, and esoteric philosophy. Those who attend live and free of charge on Zoom may also participate in group meditation and Q&A. Register for our newsletter at michaelbenner.com. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Thanks, Anna, and good morning, everybody. appreciate you stopping by for today's episode of The Wisdom of the Soul. Our topic today is the rain cloud of knowable things. I will always remember the first time I heard this phrase. It just seemed so rich and so wonderful. The rain cloud of knowable things. It's a very different view than most of us have been, what shall I say, educated or indoctrinated to to believe that we're born with a blank slate and that uh, what we know has to come into our brains through our senses and sensations. Uh, we need to be taught. We need to have experience in the world. Uh, we need to be trained. Uh, we need to learn to improve our memory and to think logically and be analytical and reasonable. But the whole idea of creativity, of intuition, of thoughts, ideas, uh, large concepts, a whole gestalt, arriving full-blown, this we're not taught, for the most part. I'm sure there are some teachers that are teaching it, and um, many students are benefiting from it. But it's, by and large, and certainly in my educational experience, we were never taught about intuition or how to think creatively or the benefits of non-logical realization. And the rain cloud of knowable things suggests that we share a mind. And I'll explain this uh, as we delve into the subject today. We also need to talk a little bit after the opening meditation about the difference between meditation and contemplation. And maybe review just a little bit, as we did at least one class, and I think probably several, on the difference between intuition and instinct. We need to be clear about that. And uh, then we'll just explore the 
a whole process of being more creative, of understanding what you already know. Don't presume that because you know something, you understand it, or if you understand part of it. What makes us believe that we understand all of it? How much of what we know do we understand partially? And how could we know more? especially when there is a need in our lives to understand more completely something that <laughs> we thought we knew until we, we realized we don't really understand it. Albert Einstein said, uh, any fool can know things. The secret is to understand them. So we'll talk about understanding. We'll talk about epiphany. We'll talk about realization, self-realization, and this whole experience of the aha, eureka illumination of thoughts arriving full-blown. I'd like to suggest you don't have to wait for that to happen or hope that it happens, that we can facilitate on demand that experience of illumination. It's another nice word for it, illumination. So I'm looking forward to discussing the rain cloud of knowable things and helping us all develop our intuition. Without sacrificing logic, let's be clear, intuition is not illogical. It works hand in hand with uh, logic and so-called common sense, which unfortunately is not all that common. Let's begin with an opening meditation. So if you'll Get relaxed, settle into the chair. And three, eyes open now, wide awake, back in the room, feeling fine, rested, refreshed, energized, revitalized, <laughs> feeling better than before, better and better, better than before. All right, um, let's talk a little about the difference between meditation and contemplation. And I'm going to uh, do a little screen share here. This is from, uh, well, it says down at the bottom here someplace, uh, mindfulnessbox.com. So one of many, many websites on mindfulness, but I liked the little graphic. I thought it was sort of cool. And let's go down these two columns because meditation and contemplation are not completely exclusive concepts. This is a pretty good attempt. It says at the top, contemplation versus meditation, but they really overlap. Both are a closed-eye process, right? Uh, let's see what they what they have that's similar and in what ways are they unique. So the first bullet point on the meditation side, meditation is about letting go of thoughts. And on the contemplation side, contemplation is about lingering on thoughts to understand them more deeply. Now, when we talk in meditation about letting go of your thoughts, that doesn't mean, as many believe, 
that your mind will be devoid of thoughts or completely quiet. And there are many kinds of meditation. The meditation that we have focused on in this series, Wisdom of the Soul, has been Vipassana as really one of the most basic types of meditation. And that's where we begin by watching the breath and identifying as the watcher rather than the breather. If you've been with us for a while, you've had an opportunity to, to practice this. And if you're a meditator and you've been to other classes and seminars and studied yoga or Eastern philosophy, actually meditation is part of all forms of philosophy, you may be familiar with this idea, but not know why you're watching your breath. Maybe nobody ever told you why you would watch your breath and identify as the one who sits in the moment without considering the past or the future and without judgment, just watch that breathing. Because there's no such thing as a good breath or a, or a bad breath or a better breath. You just observe it. And create this, I don't want to say detachment, because then you'd be oblivious, but a non-attachment to the breathing. So you allow the body to breathe itself, and you're standing over here in the side watching it. Well, the purpose of this is so that we can then, in meditation and mindfully in our eyes-open living, walking around in the world, create a... a non-attachment with our thoughts and our feelings and our behavior and our, our interaction with other people. Instead of thinking and thinking we're thinking, we can be aware of the distinction between an applied, purposeful, task-related thought and the task unrelated, intrusive, often negative nonsense that just bubbles up when you're not busy applying your thinking. And you realize you are the awareness of the thought, not the thinker. And all this time, you thought you were the thinker. Or you thought you were a victim of your emotions. Well, I'm angry. They upset me. What am I going to do? Well, you could stand back, observe the emotion without being a victim of it. Catch it on the horizon while it's still a little guy. Anger, a great example. What if you saw anger coming a mile away and were conscious enough or aware enough to say, you know, this is starting to upset me. I don't understand this better if I don't do something to open myself to more insight, realization, and understanding about why I'm feeling upset or angry. This thing's going to grow. It's going to get bigger going to get all over me, create a mess, and I'm going to end up saying and doing things that I regret. I have that pattern. We all do. Just we call it losing it. <laughs> so you can get it back before you lose it. And so too our behavior, our speech. We can consider what we're going to say before we blurt it out. Save ourselves a lot of embarrassment. I was taking pictures, this was 30 years ago, 30, 35 years ago. I was taking some pictures at a pool party, and this 
one older woman was very uh, self-conscious. She didn't want her picture taken. And I said, look, there was no social media, no internet in those days. And I said, look, I'm not going to put these in the paper and and I'm, I'm not going to show them to anybody but you and you don't have to be so self-conscious about it. But I spoke without thinking. And instead of saying self-conscious, my stupid brain said vain. And I told her, you don't have to be so vain. Oh, my God. It was like the world stopped. She turned on a heel and walked away, didn't say anything. And with the help of my friends, I realized what a moron I was and had used completely the wrong word because I just blurted out the wrong word. I just got stupid for a minute. And uh, so I hurried inside and I said, I said to the woman, look, I'm sorry. God, my God, I, I don't think you're vain. It wasn't vanity that I was talking about. I just didn't want you to be self-conscious or worry about your appearance. And I'm not going to do anything with these photos and check with you first and get your permission. But Oh, and you and I, everybody else has a ton of these, don't we? Times when we just didn't think. So when we talk about letting go of thoughts, it doesn't mean that there are no thoughts to consider. It's just that we're the awareness of the thought, not the thinker. And then contemplation is lingering on the thought. Turning it over in your mind, I think, is a nice phrase. Second bullet point, mindfulness meditation is a secular practice, although some forms of meditation are religious. And then the corresponding bullet point and the contemplation side Contemplation sometimes involves reflections on a religious text, but it could be anything. Like that little enigma about the space inside the jar and the space outside the jar. Third bullet point, the goal of meditation is to cultivate a non-judgmental awareness of the present moment. That's awareness without judgment, this pure Awareness, no labeling, no application of values. While the goal of contemplation is to explore a topic or a feeling in greater depth. You just don't do it logically. You just don't use, well, if this is true and this is true, then this is. It's not like solving an algebra problem. It's much more passive, open and receptive. It involves the intuition as opposed to the logic. Understand how those two go hand in hand. They're both forms of thinking. You could say intuition is more of a feeling than a thought, but it really is a mental process. So logic and intuition are complementary in that logic is deductive, general to specific. It's taking things apart. That's what logic is, deductive logic. Whereas intuition is just the opposite, or better said, the complement. That's specific to general. You have all these observable details, and you want to intuit an overarching generalization. What, what do all these little bits and pieces have in common? That's not logic. That's 
passive intuition, waiting for the illumination to occur. And then the last uh, bullet point, common meditation methods are awareness and concentration meditation. Common contemplation methods include journaling, reflecting, prayer, and sitting in silence. Uh, I don't think that's the be-all and end-all of it, but I think that's pretty good. I like that. And uh, offer that to you for your dining and dancing pleasure. I'd like to talk about, again, accessing this rain cloud of knowable things. This whole idea that we really need to challenge this idea that the totality of the universe which we think of as God and tend to anthropomorphize or personify as an old guy with a long beard and maybe on a throne or riding a white horse. This is a feudal model of monarchy. God is the king and we are the subjects, the commoners, or the unwashed, dirty bad sinners. This is a feudal hierarchy. It's a monarchy. And it puts the church in charge. It puts the church in the middle. Or the temple or the mosque or whatever the religious organization is. The mystical view, I'm not telling you the one right way to think or believe or whatever. It's just, again, offered for your contemplation <laughs> and your consideration. What makes a mystic a mystic? What is mysticism? What is a mystical view? What is a mystery school? It's based on a much more democratic idea of the way the universe works and the relationship of the one to the many or of the parts to the whole. And it's not futile it's not a monarchy. It's not a power-down hierarchy. You could argue that it's a hierarchy, but it's very different. It's a hierarchy of the totality and its parts. So all the mystical literature in every religion has its mystical, how shall I say, wings, whether it's Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, I don't know if you can call Buddhism mystical, but it has a lot of appeals to mystics. And in the same way, Taoism. For example, the Christian mystics are generally the Rosicrucians. Uh, there's many Christian mystics, Catholic mystics, Protestant mystics. In Judaism, the uh, Hasidics, interestingly, are mystics, so they're very conservative. Uh, the Kabbalah and the Zohar are mystical Jewish traditions. In Islam, the Sufis are mystics. In fact, Sufi is not only a word for the mystical branch of, of Islam, it's also a word that's used in a very generic and general way for anyone who believes in the universality of love and the connection of everything to everything, all of the parts in the whole and the whole and all of the parts. A shaman, shamans, the plural of shaman is shamans, 
<laughs> they're mystics. They're Sufis. And Hinduism, again, it runs the gamut from the very conservative to the, to the mystical. And Jainism and Sikhism and a lot of variations on the theme. And then, of course, in the agnostic, outside of all religion, many mystical philosophies like Neoplatonism, the works of Plotinus or Plotinus, uh, very mystical, very wonderful. You might think it's based on the work of Plato if it's called Neoplatonism, but it's Neoplatonism. It's, it's distinct. It has its roots, perhaps, in Platonic philosophy, but it actually spills over into Sufism again. Sufism has a lot of Neoplatonism in it. If you want to Google this stuff and do some of your own research, I really encourage you to do that. So, I'm arguing that the universe is very democratic. It's made up of equal pieces. That all human beings are endowed with certain inalienable rights, God-given rights that you cannot be separated from. That's what inalienable or unalienable means, that you cannot be separated from your divinity. I think that's a really good definition of mysticism. So think of the rain cloud as either the plane of the souls or the mind of God itself, which is the totality of all that is. How could anything exists that is not of God. It's pretty hard to begin to argue, whether you're religious or spiritual but not religious, that only some things are godly and then other things exist that are not God. Try working on that for a while, see where that leads you. So how do we aspire to expand our awareness to extend into this or stand beneath, receptive, and open to the downward precipitation of this ring cloud of knowable things? How do we understand what we know but don't understand? Or how do we expand our understanding of the knowledge we have to know what we don't yet know, to understand what we don't yet understand? Intuition, contemplation, and meditation, but particularly contemplation or you don't create a level of non-attachment of your thought, you are engaged with the thought, but you do it in a very passive, very gentle way, without logic. Again, I like the phrase, turning it over in your mind. Or if you're a visual, if you like visualizing when you meditate or contemplate, to imagine yourself walking around a problem or looking at it from the top down, or getting underneath it and looking up, or moving into it, doing whatever you can to change your perspective, to take it apart. If it had a, a schematic, could you blow it up and look at it? And there is a, uh, gee, I'm forgetting his first name now, but there's a fellow named Wallace, a 19th or 20th century. He was actually born in the 19th century died in the early 20th century. Forget his first name, but Wallace has a very nice model of creativity. It's not the only one, but it's one that I like a lot. And I thought I'd offer it to you here. It's just four points, and you might want to jot these down if you got a pencil or a pen. 
The four stages or steps of creativity begin with, as you might imagine, preparation. You got to organize your thoughts. You got to make a decision. What is it that I don't know and would like to know? Or what is it that I know but don't really understand very well? And what is it that I would like to understand even more? How does this extend to that? And how do I bring these disparate pieces together into something larger so I can get a more comprehensive overview of my life and how to live it in a more rewarding kind of a way? How do I, how do I find the joy and the, and the happiness and the peace and even the ecstasy or the bliss that I hear promised by many teachers, speakers? So the first step is preparation. Just organize your thoughts. What is it you want to contemplate? Review what you do know about it and take a look at what you don't know about it. Okay. The second step is the contemplation itself, the closed-eye contemplative process. Wallace actually called this incubation, which is a nice word for it, but I'm going to call point to contemplation. And we just did it. It's a meditation where instead of stepping back and watching your body breathe so as to learn in time, to watch your thoughts, study the way the mind works, recognize your patterns, find your traumas and emotional damage and explore that, resolve the, the upset and the hurt in your life, better understand yourself so that you might better understand other people. The third step is the illumination. And one of the marks of intuition, of the aha experience, the eureka illumination, is that it comes like light. So the third step is the illumination, the <laughs> the lid-lifting aha experience. Oh my God. And they arrive full-blown often. Sometimes it's just a big piece that drops in. Sometimes it's the whole enchilada that drops in. Uh, the reason I like light and so many others refer to intuition, the process of realization as an illumination, is that it may be like the dawning of an idea where, you know, you fade up from black <laughs> into a gradual realization. And it's a wonderful feeling. Wait a minute, it's coming. I'm getting it. Uh, hold on, don't say anything. <laughs> it feels a little like remembering, right? Uh, understanding often feels like remembering. It's a very unusual feeling because it couldn't be remembering. You've never known this before, but it feels like recalling. So... That's sort of an understanding that wasn't known by you, the separated individual, the mortal being, but it is known by your soul, which shares the ground of the one life. That's why insight and illumination often feels like recall. So sometimes it's the dawning of an idea. Sometimes the, like that archetype of the light bulb over your head, it just pops on, just boing, oh my God, that's it. And it arrives with a confirmation, a sense of, well, oh, that's so obvious. Why didn't I why didn't I think of that before? Wow, what a great realization. 
And uh, sometimes you're thunderstruck. Sometimes it's just a lid-lifting explosion of awareness. And not only do you understand, but your whole life has changed. The landscape is forevermore changed. Everything about life is different. This often happens after surviving some traumatic event. After my uh, heart bypass surgery, like what, 12 years ago now, I think. I woke up out of that surgery with a whole new <laughs> a whole new take on life that really surprised me. I really trusted that I was going to come through it no problem. That wasn't it. I was really surprised by the change that I experienced. A shift in priorities, mostly. That's what occurred to me first things that had seemed important to me became so trivial, so ridiculous. Like life itself became so much more meaningful. Um, my ability to, to watch the sunrise or sunset. We lived in upcountry Maui at the time, and we had this view of both the North Shore and the South Shore from 4,000 feet. And there was this meadow out in front of our house. And in the late afternoon, because there's ocean all around you, and because we're 4,000 feet above it, when the sun goes down, it goes down. It goes way down. <laughs> it goes way past the horizontal. And so there's like an hour or an hour and a half of uh, what a photographer would call golden time, the golden hour out there is like two and a half or three hours where the meadow, uh, I often said, would be filled with butterscotch. And the birds would gather. The birds noticed it too. The birds loved it. And uh, they would all gather in the trees. There was one tree in particular. It would be filled with birds in the late afternoon as the sun would go down and they would chatter up such a song and watching the shadows lengthen and this meadow become you know a more golden color of yellow and then more orange and more golden and then the violets would it's just it was so different it was like I just hadn't noticed it I was awakened I, I woke up meditation and contemplation will allow you to continue that process, to, to initiate and then continue that process of awakening. And so the fourth step is verification. So it's preparation, contemplation, sometimes called incubation, the illumination, and then you open your eyes, and number four is verification. Now you verify. You go out into the world and apply what you've learned. Or you see how it knits together with other concepts that you know and are aware of. And you begin to weave this tapestry of a personal philosophy. You're no longer dependent upon what other people say. You see differences of opinion as a grand and beautiful diversity from which you get to pick and choose that which resonates for you and makes sense to you, and you learn to honor that and respect, if not agree with, others who have a different point of view. You respect that, 
their intention is in the right place, if they're not angry and and, and nasty and hostile and tell you you don't have the Lord in your life and they do and they're saved and you're not and you're going to hell and they're going to pray for you and all that, <laughs> all that arrogant, self-righteous stuff. Then you go to compassion for their suffering. And that's another challenge. That's a real challenge. That's another class for another day. We'll definitely have to do more on the nature of compassion, how we use that to resolve our frustration and hurt and our anger at those who are judging us. One thing not to judge others, but how much control do you have over feeling judged? It's another issue altogether. So you got those four steps, the Wallace, four steps of creativity, preparation, contemplation, illumination, and verification, right? But you don't have to limit yourself to books. You're not limited to Google. You're not limited to the ideas that are extant on the earth. You can go beyond all of that and assemble your own philosophy. You have not only that right, but that responsibility because you are not other people. You're not supposed to have the views of other people, at least not in all regards, certainly in some regards. There's a lot we can agree on in this world. Sensible people can agree on a great deal. But the whole point of being an individual is to have your own personal view of reality. Again, it's not just a freedom, it's a responsibility to add to the mix. And you say, well, I'm not, nobody's going to read my journal or my, my dream book. And I'm not going to write a book. I'm not giving lectures. I'm not going to set up a church or do a webinar or seminars. What difference does it make? It makes a difference in just the way you be in the world. Your consciousness is part of the whole. So the more peaceful and loving and kind and empathetic and compassionate you are, that goes out into the world. Energy follows thought. It's a core understanding of the magnetic nature of consciousness, of love. That you reap what you sow. If you just put out uh, in the way you drive, in the way you treat people, the clerk at the grocery store, the waiter or waitress in the restaurant, that one member of your family that you really don't like, <laughs> but you got to spend Thanksgiving with them anyway. Instead of needing them to change, change yourself and, and find new ways of at least tolerating who they are. But then go beyond that. See, what, what can I learn from them? What can they teach me about me? So much of the wisdom is about making events and circumstances in life personal. Understanding what a situation says about you rather than fixating or obsessing on what it says about them. That's what the animal brain wants to do. And often people get together 
in conversation and small talk, and that's all they talk about is other people and what they did and who they are and what kind of people they are and why they're bad and wrong and stupid and politics are horrible and thank God I'm not them and all of that stuff. Turn it around. Make it about yourself. Not as a matter of blaming yourself, but as a matter of, of enlightening yourself. So the rain cloud of knowable things, that all things knowable are available to you right now. Not on Google, not in the books, the libraries. There's a lot of wonderful information in the world, but there's a lot of information upstairs that you can bring down. The alchemical model, I'll just add, and then we'll go to the Q&A is evaporation, condensation, precipitation, right? That's a cycle, that's a cycle. As above, so below. So we're connected, you have to rise up, you have to aspire to it, then it comes down to you and you meet it at the mountaintop. That's where you find the rain cloud.